0: so good. sometimes that we could have the enthusiasm to come in church like those kids just ran out of here to go to go to children's church yeah they, they couldn't wait to get out of here <laughs> to go to that service and don't you miss that don't you miss that enthusiasm yeah maybe we do it in our adult way sometimes just just can't wait to get up in here sometimes Hear what the Lord is going to say. Not pro forma, not checking the box, but fellowship. Learning, listening, and worshiping. Because he's been so, I don't even know how to say (laughs) so. I say yes. That's right. That's right. Oh, to the power of infinity. So yeah, amen. Yeah, uh, to to us, but to me, too. Amen. Well, when we were in March and we had guest teachers come, we reached a point in our Bible study. Um, we'd go in book by book, and one of our wonderful teachers, I believe, it was Brother Dada. Pretty certain it was. Um, did a study on the book of Judges, and um, there's so much wisdom in the book of Judges that it's just been on me, again, to do some teaching from that. And so the Lord has given me, I think, a study that I believe we can have on the book of Judges. Um, Maybe you want your Bible for this one and pull it out. If you use a Bible app, that's fine. But uh, we're going to start, and then we're going to go as far as the Lord says, so I always put that out there. book of Judges right after Joshua. And the name of the sermon series is, uh, and you'll understand this as we go through and study it, the name of the, of the sermon series is Flawed Heroes. Flawed heroes, okay? Because there's a whole lot of wrong and a whole lot of right in Judges. And and I think that if we ought to use an underlying theme, is that good people are people, all right? And mess up and still can do good things for the Lord, all right? And the Lord shows us in this space how he can use and because I think some people have this mistaken belief that everybody that's in Bible, that the Bible that's mentioned as a, you know, a saint um, was perfect. And I came to tell you today, that's absolutely not the truth. And in fact, it seems like the Lord always picked less than perfect people to do his bidding. And there had to be some intentionality about that, because it's such a recurring theme in the scripture. Uh, of course, there's no, there's only one man who's ever been, by, by our standards, perfect. We know his name is Jesus. All right? but, but we'll see time and time again, as we go through these individuals who were, who were uh, deemed judges, we'll give you what that definition means. It's not, it's not Judge Wapner, Judge Judy. All right? We're not talking about them kind of judges. All right, we're talking about a whole different concept in Scripture. Let me see if I can historically bring you to this place. And today, we won't be talking about a particular judge today. We're going to be kind of setting the scene for why we're in this place in the Scripture. And it's important for us to understand this because it helps us understand the overarching um, um, theme of Scripture. And so... The Lord has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They wandered around for about 40 years, still not getting to the promised land. The promise is still true, but they haven't had faith enough to get to that place. Moses, as the scripture says, Moses, thy servant, is dead. All right? Moses has died at the age of 120. He's been buried in a place that no man knows. God took him and buried him there himself. But before he did, he had already tapped Joshua to be his leader. Joshua, you know, we talk about this Joshua generation. Be careful on the message today, on this Joshua generation talking. Joshua has led the children of Israel from Kadesh Barnea, which was the the little uh, paradise in the, in the desert that they stayed at for 40 years, to the promised land. And God has said, we're going to take you in, and I'm going to give you this land, like I promised. And Joshua's going to lead you into the battles, and you're going to be victorious. Why? Because I'm leading you into these battles. And they swear their lives to the Lord. That's, Joshua, that's, that's most of the book of Joshua. And then we get to the 24th chapter of Joshua, And it ends with Joshua dying. And that's when the wheels come off. That's when problems start. And so chapter 1 of Judges, I'm not going to read it for you. I'm going to synopsize it because our message is going to center today on chapter 2. Chapter 1 of Judges leads us into God telling them, Go to this land and take it, and I will give it to you. And if you do everything I tell you to do, then you'll receive the promises that I'm assuring you, you, you want. Okay? So they go in, and initially, Mason, they start doing exactly what the Lord tells them to do. They go in, they take the land, they destroy God says to them without question, destroy everything in it. Don't leave anything. All the people, all the idols, everything they have, get rid of it and so they initially they start doing it and all is well God is with them and then something happens I don't know where the change of heart was but this is what chapter one is all about instead of doing exactly what God tells them to do they start trying to manage the situation cuz one of them starts to realize why are we going to kill all these folk? Watch this now. When we can make them slaves. Mm. And so they start doing that. <laughs> Instead of getting rid of everybody, they start enslaving people. And then it catches on, because each tribe was supposed to take out a certain group of folk, because the land had been divided. And so they start enslaving folk. And And then let's just go, this tribe looks over and says, well, hmm, that worked out pretty good for them. See, So we'll do the same thing. But the backdrop to that is they're not doing what God tells them to do. And if you don't write nothing else down about what I say today, write this down. Disobedience to God always has consequences. Disobedience always has consequences, all right? And so why would the writer of Judges start by telling us about Israel's failure to obey God? Because that is the up and down theme of scripture. God rescues, man loves him, apologizes, repents, lives for a while falls back into the same old pattern of behavior. And God in His loving grace, forgives again and the cycle continues and repeats itself. All right? And the purpose of our message, starting today, message is starting today, is to remind us that disobedience to the Lord follows when we are careless with the things that He tells us to do, all right? Our lives are always affected by disobedience. And so, here they are. They've reached a place called Bokim. 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 We're in chapter 2. We're going to move on to chapter 2. And remember, when you, don't, you, may not, you may not know this, but I'll tell you. When they came ashore after they crossed the river, they came to a place called Gilgal. Gilgal. Yeah. And it's at Gilgal that's famous in scripture because it's there, T, that the people recommitted themselves to the Lord, to the Lord. And they're ready for a new relationship with the Lord at Gilgal. But they are now at this place called Bochum, which is near Gilgal, or the area called Bethel. And the angel there comes in, starting in chapter 2, and he starts there reminding them of everything he's done for them. The angel, says the angel of the Lord. All right. Who has been seen in the other Old Testament books, some believe it is a the oftenest, the Lord Himself coming in that form. But he said, I made you go up out of Egypt and brought you into the land which I swear to give to your fathers. And I gave your fathers a covenant that will never be broken. I did. Saying this, I, not I directed that it be done. And they were instructed to clearly not make any uh, leagues or agreements with the inhabitants of the land. But they were to eliminate them, destroy them, destroy all of their false religions. And they refused to do it. And so the angel asked, why? Why? What did you hope to gain? by not doing what I told you to do. And so Israel's disobedience to these simple instructions caused the Lord to do something that's amazing here. It's amazing. He said, no longer am I going to allow you to get the victory when you go into battle. Well, that, Now, that's enough of Paul's right there. But then he says, and in fact, I'm not going to drive them out of the land anymore. The ones I told you to drive out of the land will now, watch this, be your stumbling block. Yes, the ones I told you to get rid of will become pricks in your side, will become stumbling blocks for you. They will, in fact, intertwine you and cause you to have problems, because what God wanted was for folk to make a choice of him or them. And so I'm going to give you full freedom, because that's what folk want, right? They want to make their own choices, even today. Now, you're going to see today's symbolism and what's going on here, and I don't know if it's just symbolism. He said, he said, in the end, I'm not going to make them leave the land. I'm going to make you leave How in the world God has, for all this time, sought to give the children of Israel this promised land. And because we go into it, or they go into it with the wrong idea, he says, I'm not going to drive the ones in there out. You're going to end up leaving the promised land because of your disobedience. And so, here we are. Chapter 2. And a catastrophic thing happens. I'm going to start reading at verse 8. Verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8. Verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his, inherit, his inheritance and temneth, and Timneth hares in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Verse 10 is your most significant verse in this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. The B part says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they, provided, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the asteroids. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies so this message today the title of it in this in this series the name of this message the title of this message is second generation syndrome second generation syndrome the lord starts by telling us that these people are careless because they should have seen this coming He's been pretty clear in everything he's directed them to do so far. Yeah. But watch this in case you missed what I just read. He said, it won't be you, but it'll be the next generation that will reap the problems that were caused by your disobedience. Not you, but them. They're going to experience it. The next generation will have the pain that comes from the fruit of your disobedience. See, the the, the first generation, the disobedient generation, didn't actually feel the pain. No, 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 no. Nothing that was drastic seemed to happen to them. They gradually assimilated into the culture that they were not supposed to be a part of so these verses that we're talking about today are full of god's painful grace painful because he tells the people in advance the cause of your hard lives comes from not doing what i told you to do simply put the people fail to drive out the enemies as god had instructed them to drive them out to follow god meant that they would have had to be against the pull of the cultures in which they were immersed. Somebody ought to hear me today. You got to go against the grain of popularity. You got to go against the grain of what feels right. You cannot be part of what you're in. You have to be separated from it. And that's what ha- that would have been them following what God said. Instead, they simply assimilated into the surrounding culture. Nobody really uh, enjoys being against what seems natural to everybody else. No, no. Nobody wants to be outside what's popular. When you say to yourself and your children say it to you all the time, everybody's doing it. Nobody wants to not be a part of everybody that's doing it. It takes courage and discipline not to be a part of everybody that's doing it. And that's what God was calling them to do. If you read the record of their failures, although it's all listed in the first chapter of, uh, of, of Judges, they tried to manage what God said should be eliminated. And this caught them up in a problem. That the place where they were landed, the name of it is Bochum. There is no irony here. Bochum means weeping. And God let them stage there because eventually they would know what weeping was all about. Now, now we all fail the Lord. And nobody, nobody's got no sanctified scalpel trying to point the finger at these people because we, we all are constantly in need of a, of a fresh repentance. Yeah, we, you know, we make up with our mind on right and need to turn over and pray immediately because something jumped on you already. That means you out of league with what the Lord said, but, but that's not the issue that Israel had. They were disobedient in a deeper context. All right? The disobedience they suffered was more foundational than simply not doing what the Lord said to do. It was more foundational than that. They failed to drive out their enemies when they first entered the Promised Land. And they were still not driving them out when God came about them. So not only did they fail initially to do what he told them to do, and then they continued in that pattern of behavior, not driving them out. And they had done this, somebody's gonna be, they had grown accustomed to living with what God said should not be accommodated. They were acclimated to wrong. In fact, they had intertwined this lifestyle into their lifestyle. Somebody ought to hear me in here today. Somebody has intertwined what God said we shouldn't be involved in in their lifestyle. It's part of how you live right now. So much so that it's hard for you to tell that it ain't, it's not in the right place in your life. And God said you shouldn't be living like this. The problem was they didn't know how to live no other way. They didn't know how to get back to that place. Their uh, original obedience had been ongoing and systematic. Systematic. They were careless, and they literally didn't feel the effects from it immediately. They simply stopped doing the things that they had been doing when Joshua and the elders were around. They just stopped doing those things they couldn't sense that they were drifting spiritually because it was so gradual that it seemed almost normal in their words in their words now i mean in other words they were embracing past disobedience by continuing it so because they didn't push it away They were really tearing it on. And they never consciously processed the fact that they were guilty in the sight of God. And now they were sowing to their disobedience. In other words, they're growing the wrong that they should have been eliminating. Should have been getting it out of your life, but you are watering it. You fertilizing it. Yeah, you're letting the sun shine on him. And God is saying there are going to be consequences when that fruit of disobedience, when that tree of disobedience grows up in your house. It's going to be your children that's going to eat the fruit from that tree of disobedience. Yeah. And that kind of disobedience isn't something you can just leave behind. Yeah. The very disobedience that they thought would bring them ease and freedom turned out to be their greatest source of grief. They're weeping at Bochum. And then they've already gotten into this pattern of behavior. We see that from chapter 1, and then the unthinkable happens. Well, it's going to happen because of age and time, and Joshua died. Already they're in a pattern of disobedience. But, but Joshua has been there to help them. Whenever they do wrong, Joshua's been there to help them get right. And as long as Joshua was there, they'd get right. But now Joshua's gone, Cam. So who's going to help them? Well, whew, thank God, there's still some folk around who were around when Joshua was around. And so those folk would remind them how good God had been to them. Those folk would remind them about the marches and, and, and the sit-ins. And they, they, mar- they remind them about all the stuff they do to get up into these offices that they now the presidents and the CEOs of. But, but then them folk died. And so Joshua's gone. And the generation with Joshua is gone. I hope y'all see what I'm saying here. And there was a generation that's come up that did not know the Lord and could not remember how good he'd been, been to us. One of the problems with second generation syndrome is that it's gradual. It's not a flash. It doesn't happen suddenly. It's gradual. It's insidious. It's almost like a dripping... Faucet. if you leave a drip of water over a rock long enough, you'll have the Grand Canyon. Because that's how it was created, by constant erosion from rock. So surely if a drop of water can break through something as hard as a rock, surely it can mess up our resolve every now and then, something dripping in your life. Can wear out your defenses. The gradual impact of the second generation syndrome is part of its insidiousness. Yeah, it says that all that generation, in verse 10, was gathered to their fathers. That means simply they died. Yeah, we're talking about Joshua's generation. You know. We talk about Joshua generation all the time folks stand up and say we part of the Joshua generation but there's a responsibility that goes with the Joshua generation not just the celebrating that we broke through and got to the promised land there's a whole lot of folk right now on TV now that talk about they the Joshua generations of the movement they made it happen and they got us in places and all the professors you see it all these uh, these colleges and universities and all these folk in these corporations came through because of the hard work of the Joshua generation and because and it's true and we have to celebrate them and thank them for the hard work they did and the lawsuits they filed and the suffering they went through and all the problems they had and they remember that it wasn't because of them but it was because of the Lord that He brought us through. They know that they have no problem telling. Us about that. They know, entering the promised land, even the first black president of this country had to step back and, and give pay homage to that generation that had made it possible for him to stand and take that oath back in 2008. He understood that it was the Joshua generation that got him, got him over. But then, we've been having a whole lot of Joshua generation funerals. And that's a problem because the Bible says that this scene is replicating itself. Yeah, the Bible says that when that generation had died, had been gathered to the fathers, it was that next generation, that second generation that started having the problem. These were the people who had heard the words of Joshua. These were the people who had walked the streets with King, I mean Joshua. These are the people who had gone through all the protests but then after them came a generation who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Yeah, It's another generation that came up that took off the restrictions that we had gone through that said the formalities that we went through Getting those jobs was no longer needed. Yeah, that that generation started. I'm gonna say around the late '60s, early '70s. They, the whole music of the generation changed. Yeah, we started saying it's your thing. Do what you want to do. Yeah. Oh, oh, y'all know y'all know what I'm talking about. We started we started self-identifying. Yeah, ain't nothing wrong with it. Being proud of who you are, but put it in context. Yeah. We started doing things that pulled us away from the source of how we got there. We started saying what we didn't need anymore. Not only that, we stopped going and doing it the way we were doing it. We put whatever labels we want on it. We called it, we don't need all that tradition. We don't need all of that to get through. No, 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 no. We, we, we can do it a different way and still accomplish the same thing. Hello 2023. Yeah. Already a hundred and some, mass shootings. And I'm going to eliminate part of this discussion, right? I'm going to take racism off the table and just say what we're doing in our community. Alright? Because that's too easy when folk mistreat us. And I understand the the, the, the waves from all those other problems. I'm just talking about how we treat each other. Yeah. They couldn't keep the same intensity it seems that their previous generation that kept. They intended to do it. Oh, oh yeah, they intended to do it. At first, they continued doing some of what their, fa- their mothers and fathers had done, their parents and leaders had done, but but they, they didn't keep it up. We didn't keep it up. Let me say we. we. We didn't keep it up. Yeah. Technically, I'm you know, born in 64. I guess I'm part of that generation, too. We have not kept it up. And the reason it seems that they couldn't do it, church, is because they didn't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They didn't know. Because each generation started loosening the process and creates a problem down the line. Not knowing certain things will destroy you. Not not knowing certain things will mess you up. And they lack two kinds of knowledge. Alright? Not just one. Two kinds of knowledge. They had no living experience of God. You know, They had no living experience with God. That's what the scripture says. It said, who did not know the Lord. So they didn't know God like that. And then they had no knowledge of what God had done in the past. Which means that nobody was teaching them or they weren't going into the spaces to be taught what he had done for them. When we get to a place in our country where we can't even talk about what happened yesterday without it being problematic, that's a problem. Yeah, but we ain't got to be mad at them. Why do we allow ourselves to just teach black history one month after year? Why isn't that an every month conversation? Why isn't that a constant conversation about what's happened in our country to us? I hear somebody say, don't nobody want to keep talking about them old stories. Yeah. How I got over. How I got over. My soul looks back and how I got over. Yeah. You got to have both. You got to have a lived experience with God. And then you got to know what the Lord has done for us in the past so that you can connect your lived experience with how God is. Yeah, both kinds of knowledge are necessary, not enough just to be in a place and have an encounter. Let me tell you why that's a problem. When, when, When people have to have their own personal experience with God to understand God's life and power to them, They have to learn that it takes discipline to be able to hear God's voice over other stuff. And it takes your lived experience with God to know how God talks to you. Some folk have been experiencing the power of God in their lives and don't know that it's God who's doing it for them because they don't have enough lived experience and they don't know how God Deals with folk. They don't understand that everybody won't get a burning bush. No, no, they don't understand that. That sometimes God speaks to you in a still, quiet voice, but you got to learn that by studying. And sometimes God comes to you in dreams. But you got to learn this. Somebody's got to teach you this. And then, specifically, even if God does those things, you got to learn how he talks to you. Because the way he talks to you may be significantly different than how he talks to somebody else. Somebody may come and hear a sermon on a Sunday and a word in the sermon tells them what God wants them to do. Another person might walk out of church that same Sunday and say, I ain't getting nothing out of that. But the other person said, I got all I need from the Lord. How does the Lord talk to you? And so they need educational content to fully understand the experiential context, all right? You got to be able to put both of them together or else you'll start saying, you know, I sure am lucky. Yeah. Every time I get in a spot, things just happen and make it work out for me. They don't understand that you can put a, a name to what's happening to them no nobody's taught them that that's the lord taking care taking care of you or some folk in terms of that two times two kinds of knowledge every generation needs his own experience of god's reviving spiritual power every generation and each generation needs and a deep understanding of god's words and ways the text says this that these people had no knowledge of who their god was or the work he had done all right this was the beginning of spiritual ruin but not the end of the path it was a beginning to a downhill slide there's another downward step that they had to go into and because they didn't know certain things they soon discovered because they didn't know certain things, that they were now bowing down and creating new idols within their own community, within their own life. They were making new idols. This is what the scripture says. Verse 11, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, or the idols, who were there. And this describes the sin that they eventually committed right there in that, chapter, that verse 11 and they were in a new place because they were not born idolaters they weren't born that way they were born under the umbrella and protection of the Lord they defaulted to becoming idol worshipers because there was a vacuum in their hearts and in their heads because no one had taught them that that, that space in their heart God had spoken for that. Because they hadn't gotten the training and the teaching, they put other things in that place. All right. And when when you don't know God and his works, you can't help but fall in love with something else. When you don't know what he's done for you. Because there's a vacuum there. So you start picking up on parts of the world systems around you. You start you start learning yoga. And the meditation that comes with that. It ain't just the physical stretching and all that. We can put that in any context. But that whole system that goes with yoga is a system that's completely different than Christianity. You don't know that that's seeping into your concept of life. People will meditate but not pray. People talk about karma. Karma. More than they talk about the Holy Spirit. These are Christians who talk about karma's going to get you. Christians. Not only that, we start putting this our worst problem. We start putting secular education in as an idol. As if my degrees and my exposure and education is what's taking me to the top and sustaining, sustaining me there. Start believing, and we've been hearing about science. I was preparing this message, and I went back just to show you how insidious this idolatry can be. I went back, and I don't know why I kept this particular one. I think it's, I don't know. I don't know. This is, a, this is a, an exam that I took November 2nd, 1981, I was a freshman at UAB, psychology class, and I've made reference to it before, but the fact that I actually have it, I did pretty good on the exam, yeah, did pretty good on on this exam, there were some others that I probably didn't keep, burned them up straight out the door, (laughs) yeah but on this one we're talking about different forms of philosophy now this is a little boy that's been raised in the church sunday school every sunday i was there teaching whatever else we had that the church had going on we were there but the world drip 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 the world is going to keep coming at you and if you're not strong enough to understand what's going on and protect what you know, then it's easy for you to turn into that space. And so I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm looking at what the instructor, who clearly was not a believer, and this talking about these different answers that I've given in red. And I wrote on answer number six about A philosopher named Kierkegaard, you may have heard of him, Kierkegaard and I wrote this, Kierkegaard said that the key to believing in God is faith. Come to Sunday school. He said that the Bible was just a historical document and that Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. He also said that God was infinite, spiritual, and permanent. And man is finite, physical, and temporal. And that in order to be truly faithful, we have to believe God in all the above. That was my answer. He took one off. All right? And he said in the comments, contrary to reason, to think Jesus was fully man and fully God. That's what he wrote on my paper. That's that's what... So the system is telling me that what I believe in, not just what Kierkegaard said, that I put in my answer that Jesus was all man and all God. He tells me it's contrary to reason to believe that. And then I was reading it, and... He said, there's there's, there's, there's one answer I gave that he lauded. I don't know what philosopher I was writing, but on question eight, I wrote, my answer was, one might think that since there is evil in the world, there is no God. Because if God were omnibenevolent, he would not like to see his creatures suffer. If he were omnipotent, he would have the power to stop the evil, and if he were omniscient, he would know all of the evil that exists. Since there is evil in the world, then it must be said that God lacks one of these qualities. Therefore, he cannot be God. His response was, good answer. That's what he wrote on my paper. Good good answer. Didn't take nothing off on that one. I made a 93 on the exam, but how much damage to sitting in those classes? Do one at a time, one day at a time, one professor at a time who doesn't have the same concepts that we have. And so you can make idols out of education and knowledge that can pull you away from our core beliefs it's important to understand that we have got to keep the systems and education in place that allow us to elevate who god is in our lives even when it's tough verse 10 said there's a generation that did not know him the people became idolaters gradually but the seeds of the idolatry we were prepared because we allowed our memory and our knowledge of God to slowly evaporate. Now, time is an important factor in this. None of this happens overnight. It's not a flash. It's, It's gradual. People forget why sin happens, and they always look at the immediate causation of sin. They never look at what happened years ago to put you in that position, and that's the struggle we're having right now. Everybody wants to know, why is our community in this spot right now? And we want to point the finger at everything that's going on right now, when in fact, this is something that's been building for a long time. There's a timing element in the growth of either holiness or sin. You don't immediately get more mature as a believer, nor do you immediately get awful as somebody who's not believing. It takes process to grow both of them. And when you don't concentrate on getting holy or better, then by assimilation, you are soaking in what's all around you. You got to put something in your life. And this generation stopped doing that completely and so you need to know that the second generation struggles with the gradual impact of all that's around it and the next thing you need to know is the motivation for godliness fades when you only consider your own spirituality yeah the motivation for godliness fades when you only consider your own spirituality, this is not going to make some people smile. When I explain this to you, same two verses, verses 10 and 11 we're concentrating on in Judges chapter 2. Why is there a need to send somebody to help us out? But in verse 7, it says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. As long as two things happened, the people served the Lord. First, they served the Lord as long as Joshua was around. Okay? All right? Because Joshua kept pushing them to serve. They served him that long. And then second, they served the Lord as long as people were around. Dylan, I'm sorry. They served the Lord as long as people were around telling them about the signs and wonders and the great miracles that the Lord had performed. So as long as those folk were around, there was still connection to the Lord. After these two factors were removed, the next generation forgot about the Lord. Forgot about it. There's another motive for godliness, not just knowledge of your own experience, not just knowledge of what the Lord has done in the past, but I think without this third factor, then true godliness probably fails. It often fails. So you can't consistently make the most godly decisions in your current life until you consciously make those decisions For the next generation. All right? For the next generation. Not your own generation, but you have to make your decisions today based on what your children will need tomorrow. That's how you maintain true holiness in this space. You must consider tomorrow and the effect. That living here will have on your children. There is a mistaken belief that they'll just get it. And I came to tell you that is a strategy of the devil. They will not just get it. There's too much other stuff getting their attention. For them to reach on the shelf and decide they're going to pick the Lord. Too many problems in that way of preparing children for tomorrow. Yeah, Paul said this in Romans 14 and 7. None of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. So Paul's advice on how Christians should learn to evaluate their attempts to live for God comes from, if you want to read, it's Romans chapter 14. And it's about people, us, trying to sort out the rules that should apply to our lives and how we follow God and how we pursue what God wants us to do. There are a whole lot of different situations that can come up. And people bring a whole lot of different ability to the discussion and levels of maturity. There are some people who've been in the church for 50 years But in truth, they haven't really grown much at all in those 50 years. They're never gonna raise their hand and admit that, but they still have the same level of understanding of the Bible because they've never made themselves learn more. No, they won't put themselves in a position for somebody to teach them more about the Bible. They could have a deeper understanding. But they're okay where they are and that's why sometimes when you look at their lives it's hard for you to tell whether they are or not in the household of faith because they've got just enough to say i'm on board but they also mix that with just enough of the world to not be a distraction in the world they don't want to be no holy roller they're okay with never being the one in the office that they ask to pray. They're okay with that. They're okay with just being in the middle. And being in the middle is problematic. Because guess who's watching you be just in the middle? Your children. They're learning from you how to be. And when you make it optional in your life, guess what it becomes for your children? Absolutely optional. The psalmist says it like this. Psalm 78 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn, Um, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's a universal principle to apply. Paul would say my life is not an end in itself it is a pattern for others and a pattern for the next generation if you're not making decisions today based on the fact that your life is a pattern for the children that are here now and for those unborn children then you're not thinking deeply enough about your own faith life faith walk. So how shall I live my life? How much time and attention shall I give to God? And you can't really make that decision until you do something else. Alright? Um, you look around the sanctuary you look around your community where you work, and you think about the fact that there are a whole lot of folk who are ready to give birth, just having babies. What about them? Who's the pattern for them? All right. that the next generation might know them. God wants you and me to live our lives thinking about our choices and how they affect unborn and newly born children. Yeah. I have had the blessing of having my life shaped by the prayers of somebody else. Oh yeah. Born into a context where church was happening. It wasn't optional. You going. You gonna be there. And you gonna be there as long as we, when we, we go sit down. Did I like it? No! Did I feel frustrated? Yes! Were there other things I wanted to do? Absolutely! But even with the 10 or so years that I spent out in the wilderness when I was making my own choices, when I left the house and went out and even though I had started raising my own children at that point, even with that in place, I've had the blessing, I can't even count the hours of time I've spent in a Bible study setting. Now this is even before I became a preacher or a pastor. Prior to that time, I can't imagine, if you will, walk with me, how much my mama prayed in 1993 when she was pregnant and wasn't married in Birmingham, Alabama, in this church family. 63, I can't imagine when she was pregnant, waiting for me to come, how scared she was under those circumstances, not knowing what was going to happen. I know she was scared because she told the story herself when I was born that because of the way things were, she delivered. I was born at Holy Family Hospital over there and and the people don't even know they were delivering. That's where black doctors that's where doctors got uh, permission to deliver babies. That's where they had permission. and So I was born at that hospital and because of the way work was at that time there wasn't no calling to see what was going on Mama was over there by herself and she was 18 years old. And my grandmama said when she walked in the room, my mama was in tears. And she said, Well, what's wrong? You heard me what's wrong. She said, She said, I thought y'all weren't gonna want me no more. How does that factor in your psyche, the whole pregnancy, when you're afraid of what's going on? And fortunately, I had a loving Extended family that embraced me and, and, and did everything, but how much did my grandmom and granddaddy pray for me and their daughter? This is before I even got here. How many prayers have been laid down for Donnell before Donnell ever got here? Not to mention the number of prayers that have been uttered on my behalf since I've been here. I've been bathed in prayer all my life. The fact that I learned how to pray for myself only carries on what it started. So I can't even tell you how much I've been immersed in. I can't tell you. I can't calculate the 52 Sundays a year. Even if we didn't go every Sunday, I guarantee you we went 45. And this is before I had a choice. Let's not even talk about the last 20 years. And so at this point, I could probably stop coming to church like I've been coming and still be okay because my relationship with the Lord is still going to be connected because I'm still disciplined enough to stay connected to him. But imagine when you don't have that foundation. Imagine when nobody has exposed you to the Lord. Imagine when your connection is terse at best. Every now and then we come. Every now and then we participate. Imagine how problematic that is for a child living in the circumstances where church at best is optional. And you want them to have an ongoing, long relationship with the Lord. I came to tell you today, they're not going to choose him. Because the world system fights against it. The world system is not designed to support what the Lord wants. It works against it. And so the best thing we can do is make decisions to help this second generation stay connected to the Lord. The convicting power that has shaped my walk has continued to bless me throughout my life. And so now I've got this stored-up heritage of a relationship with the Lord. And that's only because I'm bringing it into my present church life, what was invested in me earlier. My question to you, and I'm out of here, is how much are you investing in the tomorrow generation? What are you investing in tomorrow's generation? And the only way you can truly invest In tomorrow's generation is by giving up something today you got to be able to sacrifice some of yours to benefit them that's how you ensure I know somebody here know what I'm talking about there plenty of times I want to go do for me but they needed it they needed a connection I can't tell you all the times when church had to happen, when the relationship, when something had to be done in the relationship with the Lord, and I had to give up something that I, that I wanted to do, there's a great difference that's coming. We don't see it yet. We're starting to see what I'm not doing for this generation has done. We're starting to see it. We're going to blame it on COVID. Yeah, we're going to blame it on the world, but it's us. It's us, because the same God who brought us to COVID brought us through COVID. That same God. COVID going to be lied on just like the devil lied on. Truth of the matter is, some of these decisions that COVID and the devil being blamed for, we ought to take the blame for what we haven't done. They'll be better educated. They'll make more money than us. They'll be able to go and do things that some of us have never even dreamed of. Yeah. Uh, But they won't have a stored up heritage without us giving up something in this life. Some conveniences in our lives. Judges 2 and 10 will become prophetic for the next generation. Yeah, they'll look back in 30 years or 40 years and somebody will read in scripture and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. My prayer is that we don't make it so. My prayer is that we fight with everything we have. To make sure that our babies and all of those associated with them have everything they need to understand who the Lord is and what he's done in their life. I pray you shout it all over your house. I pray you walk it out in your life that you tell them every day that if it had not been for the Lord on your side, you don't know where you'd be. I tell you, make them read. Make them write. Make them do everything. Don't ask them if they want to do it. As long as you got control, I'm telling you, discipline them to have a relationship with the Lord. Stop all this freedom, because the kind of freedom that they, the world would have you think that your children need pulls them away from the Lord. It doesn't draw them to the Lord. While you in charge, be in charge. I came to tell you today, you're going to be praying one way or the other. Pray for them to grow in grace while you can control them, because otherwise you're gonna be praying on the other side. Lord, keep them. Keep them while they're away from me. Job had enough sense to understand that even when his children were grown and they went out and parted all night long, Job would get down on his face and pray for the sins they might commit. While they were celebrating, pray for your babies. Make them know that it wasn't mama and it sure wasn't daddy that ensured the possibility of a right to eternal life. Make sure they understand that that man we talk about at Easter on the resurrection was a real live man who walked this earth, who talked to friends who celebrated and that man died for them he gave his life for them make sure they know that if it had not been for that man named jesus that none of us would have a right to eternal life make sure they understand that make sure they can celebrate with you on that great getting up morning when one day all god's children are gonna be able to celebrate and see him for ourselves make sure They understand that. And don't take for granted that you got time to do it because they can't hardly go to school. They can't go to a 16th birthday party. They can't go to a a library. They can't hardly come to church without something happening that we didn't expect. Be ready. Have them ready. Let them know that Jesus loves them. It's still just as simple. As Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Teacher, right now we're going to welcome anybody here. I, I know, I can't hardly get out of this one. it's been tearing me up all week long. Second generation needs this present generation to do its job, and if we do our job, then I'm encouraged that the next generation will be alright. Come on, brothers. Doors not our church are wide open. Whosoever will, let them come right now.